Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning, DCC. Um, For those of you whom I have not met yet, my name is Hannah Tom, and I am the spiritual formation and one of the teaching pastors here at DCC. Um, I am thrilled to be with you this morning to begin the second week of Advent. Today, we light the peace candle. Now, I find that some years, it's a little trickier to light the peace candle than others. It feels a little harder to imagine the peace of Christ as our world is filled with war. Our political system feels like it hangs in the balance. And even though I'm a pastor, I am rarely asked about the end times, except for in the last couple weeks when I've been asked three times. I find this only happens when the world feels really, really uncertain. So as we light this candle, this is a reminder that we light this candle in anticipation for Christ's peace. Advent is a season of anticipation, of waiting, of hoping, of expecting. Anticipation is an emotion which I both love and hate at the same time. I love to be excited for the future, and I hate to sit in the angst of all that the future holds that's unknown to me. When I think about anticipation, I think about being six years old, and we're preparing for Christmas, and days before Christmas, a package shows up in my living room, and my sister and I were both avid gymnasts. Now, despite my parents' best efforts, concealing a balance beam is quite a trick. So when this package, 16 feet long, 4 inches wide, showed up wrapped, proudly displaying our names, my sister and I began preparing all the balance beam routines we would do once we opened this package. And yet, on the other side of this, was that thought, what if it's not actually a balance beam in there? In the quiet corners of our minds, we started to plan how we would use this gift's box as a balance beam in the event that what was inside was not the balance beam we were expecting. I think about being 22, preparing to graduate college, 
And on the one side, I was thrilled to join the real adult world. Um, no one told me how many bills were there, though. That was rude. I was ready to shed that dream. Maybe you've had it before, the one where you've forgotten to go to class all semester long, only to show up on the day of finals woefully unprepared for your exam. And inevitably, you always wake up about five minutes before you're supposed to be in class, just filled with angst. So I was ready to shed that nightmare. I was ready to become an adult, but I had no idea what I was going to do after college. I think about the anticipation of getting married. I was thrilled to be marrying my husband, and yet the weight of making one of the biggest decisions of my life hung over my head. Our life is filled with these moments of anticipation. I think about anticipating having a baby, the anticipation of retiring, the anticipation of applying for a new job, the anticipation of anything you've tried for the first time, or maybe anything you've tried that you haven't tried in a long time. Researchers tell us we're actually built for this positive anticipation of the future. It's built into us as this kind of motivation. We really need positive anticipation for the future. It lowers our stress, it boosts our mood, it keeps us moving forward. And I don't think anything highlights this idea of positive anticipation quite as much as imagining a world in which we have very little to anticipate. Now, I know this might be hard, but come with me for a second. Imagine a world in which everything shut down for a year. Like, maybe there was a pandemic or something. Imagine that the only thing you had to look forward to was maybe an Amazon package or maybe delivery on your doorstep. Too soon for COVID jokes? <laughs> a world without anticipation would be a really hard world for us to live in. This morning, as we consider the anticipation of the coming of Christ, both in his infancy and in his return, I'm going to invite us to look back, not just to Jesus' birth, but to a period of time that some scholars have referred to as the advent of Yahweh, that moment when Israel was reunited with her God after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. This morning, our text is going to come from Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21. But before we turn there, I'm going to give you a quick overview of what has happened in the book of Exodus up to this point. Exodus opens up, introducing us to the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. We are introduced to the man Moses, and his story is told in the early chapters of Exodus. The shortest version I can give you here is that Moses, despite being an Israelite, is raised in the house of Pharaoh. He eventually runs away, and while in the desert, he meets God in a burning bush. God tells Moses, I've heard the cries of my people Israel, and you are going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Moses eventually goes to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh tells Moses, absolutely not. And here, a giant cosmic battle breaks out. 
between the perceived deity Pharaoh, the god of the Egyptians, and Yahweh, the god of the Israelites. Now, one of the interesting things about the plagues is all ten of them correlate to one of the gods of Egypt. Until we get to the final plague, which confronts Pharaoh's own deity. We call this plague the Passover. And here, Pharaoh finally lets Israel go. They find themselves wandering in the desert, and the text tells us they follow a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They wander until they come to the base of the Mount Sinai. If you'll recall, the mountains is the place where the gods are thought to live. So at the base of the Mount of Sinai, they're going to meet with their god, Yahweh. And here, where we pick up the text, we're told there is a cloud that settles on the mountain. There is lightning. There is thunder. The mountain is trembling. And here we find our text in Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Now, as I read this text, there's two things that instantly jump out at me. The first one is this idea of God testing us. This idea of being in the presence of a deity that's to be feared. I get a little angst when I think about a God who is to be feared. So, as I often do when I find that the scripture makes me uncomfortable, I do a little digging into the language. A lot of times I will find if I dig into the original language, I don't actually have a problem with what the original text tells me. I have a problem with how modern translators have translated the text. So as I'm digging into this text, I find that many scholars have said that this word translated as test in our English language can actually be translated instead as to experience God. So that this verse would read more like this. So Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come so that you may experience him and that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now, as I mentioned, many times when I dig into the original language, it makes me feel better about the passage. This is not one of those cases. I'm still super uncomfortable with this idea of a God who is to be feared. And as I say that, I think of C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And I think about this picture that he paints, as he paints a picture of how he imagines the advent of Christ. Narnia is a magical land in which he depicts the Christ coming as a lion. And the young girl, Lucy, finds her way to Narnia through a wardrobe. And when she meets this lion, this Christ figure, she turns to one of the Narnians and she asks, is he safe? And the Narnian, kind of astonished, says, 
Oh, my dear girl, absolutely not. He is definitely not safe. But he is good. And I think about that when I think of the fear of God. Yes, God is way beyond anything we could put into words. Something about that is terrifying. And yet, he is good through and through. But as I continue with this text, that's not the thing that bothers me the most about the text. The thing that bothers me the most about this text is verse 21, where we're told the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. I don't have a framework for a God in darkness. I have a framework for the God who created light. I have a framework for the God who came to Abraham in the midst of deep darkness as a torch of light. I have a framework for the God who came to Moses in a burning bush. I have a framework for a God who comes to us wrapped in light and instead he shows up in darkness. I wonder if Israel felt this way too. I wonder if they had waited in slavery for 400 years, hoping and anticipating the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, if they expected him to show up in light, and then they experienced a God so beyond what they could imagine, a God who scared them. You know, this idea of light and darkness, this is something Michael talked to us about last week. He talked about light and darkness as a marker of time. He talked about time as a way for us to measure our moments with the divine. He talked about these moments of the divine, of time, as something that always points us to eternity, to the reality that there is more than time itself. And as I think about this very physical rhythm of light and dark, I think not just about time being governed by light and dark, but I think about us being governed by light and dark. In a very physical sense, our bodies run on what's called a circadian rhythm. It's a roughly 24-hour clock, which is affected by the light and the dark. It tells us when to sleep, when to wake. It controls many of our hormones. It is essential to our life. And not just our life, but many species on Earth. 60% of invertebrates and 30% of invertebrates require this rhythm to survive. We humans are really uncomfortable with the dark, though, aren't we? More and more we light the world, and as we do so, more and more of these species cease to exist. The Bible has a word for this kind of darkness, this natural darkness that God created at creation. It's the Hebrew word koshek. It's the darkness that God created. It's the darkness in Genesis 1, and it's the darkness in the 10th plague in Exodus. But the Bible also has another word for darkness. It has a word, arafel. This word, arafel, appears in our text 16 different times, and every time we are confronted with the word RFL, it is always in conjunction with the presence of God. This darkness is a darkness that conceals God. God is both the God who reveals himself in light and conceals himself in darkness. 
This idea of God in the dark, it's not actually a new idea. In the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa writes about God in the dark. Gregory is a really fascinating saint to be writing about God in the dark because the reality is his family spent most of their collective lives helping to write doctrine about who God is and what he or she is actually like. They lived at a really interesting period of Christian history. See, in 313, Constantine legalizes Christianity. Christians have a respite from the chaos and conflict they had had with the outside world since the time of Jesus. And instead, when they stop fighting with the outside world, they start fighting with each other about just about everything, a tradition which we continue today. <laughs> Gregory's father, about 20 years after Christianity is legalized, plays a major role in the Council of Nicaea. Now, the Council of Nicaea set out to write some doctrines on which Christians could hang their hats on, where we could find some agreement. About 10 years later, Gregory is born. And Gregory had no intention of participating in a religious occupation. See, his grandmother was a named saint. His father was a named saint. His sister, who did eventually convince him to take on religious work, was also a named saint. Which, can we just pause for a moment? Some of us feel pressure going home for the holidays because we have very accomplished families. Um, three generations of named saints is like a whole lot to live up to. So let's just be thankful we're not Gregory. So Gregory's older sister, her, his father and his grandmother both passed relatively early. His older sister, Macrina, steps up to help care for her aging mother and her nine siblings. She was betrothed to be married, and then her fiancé, likewise, faces an untimely death, which changed the trajectory of her life. She decided to start a monastery for women, convinces her mother to join her in this endeavor, and then frees her household slaves, three of whom actually joined her monastery. This, her life, this is what inspires Gregory to take on religious work. After the death of Macrina and his older brother Basil, Gregory, like his father, takes part in one of these councils that is meant to shed light on who God is and what they are actually like. He participates in the Council of Constantinople, and then his brother Peter dies. He is now one of his only siblings left by the age of 44. And after this, his sister Macrina and his brother Basil die as well. And here is where Gregory takes on the task of writing about the life of Moses. He imagines Moses' life to be all of our life. He starts first with this picture of Moses meeting God in a burning bush. He talks about the God of light, the God who reveals themselves to us. I think of this God of the light as the, the God who reveals things to me that keep me coming back to the faith 
over and over again, even when I want to run. The God who reveals things like that he is hope and love and peace and joy. And then he goes on to write about this moment where Israel leaves Egypt, where they're following this cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. And he talks about the God who both reveals and conceals himself. I think about this in my own life as those moments of faith that only make sense in retrospect, where we look back and go, oh, now I see what God was doing. I have a friend who describes his own deliverance experience in this way. He was in the throes of addiction. And one day, he looks up to heaven and says, God, I do not know how to get out of this, but I need out. I need your help getting out. The very next day, he's in a car accident while he's high. This car accident ultimately leads him to jail, to rehab, and to more than 15 years of sobriety. I imagine, as he stood in the glow of police lights, preparing to go to jail, probably didn't feel like he was encountering the God of light. But to this day, he will say that was the most important day of his life. Then Gregory goes on to talk about this moment where Moses is on the Mount of Sinai and where he steps into the darkness to meet God, and this is what he says. Scripture teaches by this that religious knowledge comes at first to those who receive it as light. Therefore, what is perceived to be contrary to religion is darkness. An escape from darkness comes about when one participates in the light. But as the mind progresses and through an ever greater and more perfect diligence comes to apprehend reality as it approaches more nearly to contemplation, it sees more clearly that God cannot be contemplated. For leaving behind everything that is observed, not only what sense comprehends, but also what the intelligence thinks it sees, it keeps on penetrating deeper until by the intelligence's yearning for understanding, it gains access to the invisible and the incomprehensible, and there it sees God. This is the true knowledge of what is sought. This is the seeing that consists not in seeing, because that which is sought transcends all knowledge, being separated on all sides by incomprehensibility as by a kind of darkness. And here, too, I think I know where Gregory is coming from. The longer I am a Christian, and the longer I try to describe exactly who this God is and what they must be like, the more I take comfort in the dark. The more I take comfort in saying, I'm not 100% sure, but I know this God to be good. This Advent, perhaps this is part of our invitation. Perhaps our invitation is to reflect on a God who often shows up in ways that we don't expect. We expect God to come in light. We love the light. But maybe it's not just our physical lives that need darkness. 
Maybe there's a piece of our spiritual lives that yearn for this dark place to just rest in the mystery of a God who is so far beyond my language or imagination, where we are invited to experience God. The God who invites us, despite the magnitude of his essence, to come and sit in his presence. We expected God to show up wrapped in light, and he came as darkness. We expected God to show up as a warrior king, and instead, he showed up as a baby in a manger. God continually shows up in our lives in ways we do not expect him to come. So as we sit here in the dark and we light candles surrounding the things we know about God, we light candles and think about the God of hope, we light candles and think about the God of peace, we light candles and think about the God of love and joy, maybe we sit in awe of who this God is. We sit in awe and think of those things we know, but also hold fast to the vastness that we do not know or could not know about who this God is. Maybe our invitation is to step into the darkness, to step into the space that maybe scares us, to step into a space we can't explain or defend, but to step into the space where God is. Let's pray. God, this morning, we thank you for the anticipation that you invite us into. We thank you that you are the God that both reveals and conceals yourself to us. God, would you give us a sense of peace about sitting in those parts of you that we don't know yet. In your name we pray, amen. This morning, we're going to participate in Eucharist. And as always, I want to remind you that this is not the table of DCC. We practice here what's called open table. There's no requirements for participating in Eucharist. This is the table of God, so if you're in here, you are invited to participate in Eucharist with us. Um, just a few logistical reminders about our Eucharist. The bread is gluten-free, and the taller glass is wine, and the shorter one is juice. Um, if you will come down these side aisles and then return to your seats down the diagonal, that will help us greatly. And on the night, that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he took wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Come and eat. 